stewardship. What is it, and how do we do it most effectively in a way that glorifies Christ? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Once again, you are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today's Monday, December the 13th of 2010, and I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are blessed to have you here, and here we are almost at the end of 2010. Can you believe it? Less than two weeks until Christmas, less than three weeks until 2011. Wow, that uh, <laughs> that's actually the first time I've said that out loud or even thought that, so that sounds kind of weird. Yeah, three weeks and it'll be 2011. So anyway, hope you guys have had a great week. For those of you who are on the West Coast, I am envying you today. <laughs> I know that out West, it's been like 85 degrees in, uh, in Phoenix and in Southern California. Uh, they were rec- uh, recording some record high temperatures. Not here, not here in Arkansas. Overnight, we had some sub-zero temperatures with the wind chill. And man, it is just frigid cold outside. But here I am again on a Monday uh, preparing my lesson for you guys. Uh, we're going to be doing Romans chapter 12, verse 13 today. And I'm sitting by a fire, which uh, to me, that's like, wow, this is this is great. I love doing that, sitting next to a fire and preparing my lesson. But uh, yeah, without the fireplace, man, this house would be freezing. The, the heater would just be running non-stop. So I love having a, a fireplace. Of course, growing up in Las Vegas, I never had a fireplace. You, you know, you don't need one out there uh, except for decoration. So anyway, I'm, I'm holding up with the with the cold here and everything. Wanted to remind you guys, those of you who are in Washington, uh, that this Sunday, this Sunday, I will be up in Linwood at Linwood Evangelical Free Church, and I'm going to be preaching on First Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you are anywhere near Linwood. I would love to meet you. So if you want to uh if you want to be there while I'm preaching, it's going to be at Linwood Evangelical Free Church. Uh of course, in Linwood, the service is at 10:45. They have a Sunday school hour uh that starts at 9:30. Uh if you google Linwood Evangelical Free Church, you should be able to find their website and uh get directions and everything on there. But man, I would love for some of you guys to show up. That would be really awesome. And as far as I know, my college roommate is still planning on showing up. Uh that'll be that'll be good. It would be good to see him and it'll be interesting. Very interesting. He's uh he's never been much of a religious type, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. And of course, this church in Linwood is a church that I've applied to be pastor at, so uh, I've really been in prayer for that, and I'm asking you guys if you would lift me up in prayer this week, and also if you would pray for the elders at Linwood Evangelical Free Church, um, that they would have the discernment and uh, really be um, be able to, to feel whether uh, you know this is my calling to go up there or not. Uh, I am excited. I, I really have a heart for this area. It's 77% unchurched up there. That's what the demographics say, that uh, that area is 77% unchurched. There is a lot of agnosticism, a lot of atheism, naturalism, new age, all that kind of stuff up there. Uh, not a lot of Christianity. So that excites me. That that fires me up. 
But uh, but yeah, you guys know me. That's that's what I'm all about. So anyway, if you're up there, I would love to meet you this coming Sunday, Sunday, December 19th, 2010. Anyway, we've got a lesson to do, so let's go ahead and get started with that with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you today and we thank you for giving us this time to study your word. I pray, Lord, that your word would transform our lives today in order that we would learn how to glorify you better than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the person who has put their trust for salvation in the work of Jesus and in the work of Jesus alone and who has thereby become a new creation in Jesus, everything changes. Everything has to change. It's a difficult fact that we aren't transformed in a moment. The moment that we uh, put our faith in Jesus, it's a, it's a fact, a difficult fact, that we aren't transformed in that moment into this completely Christ-like creature. But we have to understand that if God did all the work just instantly, like at the snap of a finger, if he did all the work to make us like his son, we wouldn't benefit from it the way that he wants us to benefit from growing in Christ-likeness. Instead, in his infinite love and in his infinite knowledge, he has created each one of us to grow in our Christ-likeness, struggling to release the sinful habits and the sinful tendencies which once characterized our lives, but which no longer have the right to rule over us. God strengthens us by his grace to overcome those habits which once owned us, but we have to make the deliberate decision. We have to make the choice to work with him rather than against him as we once did. And it's by this process of working with God and him working through us that we're sanctified, removed from the power of sin. We have to be mindful of our goal, though, to become like Jesus. That's the goal. That has to be our greatest desire because you know what? If it's not, we won't continue in that direction when life becomes difficult or when temptation becomes just too enticing. On the road to Christ-likeness, we will ultimately come to learn and accept the fact that because Christ is our new master, everything that we have, everything that's ours belongs to him. Everything. We can no longer claim that anything's our own because we ourselves aren't even our own. The true life of a Christ follower is Christ not only living in us, but Christ living through us. We have to learn to yield to him, knowing that we've not only been given a new calling and a new purpose in life, and that we not only have been given these spiritual gifts, which Paul's talked about earlier in in Romans chapter 12, we've not only been given these spiritual gifts with which we're to serve him, but we've also been given physical gifts, material possessions, if you will, with which to serve him as well. And if you're listening to this message right now, you probably have a physical material gift. Maybe you have an iPod or a personal computer or a CD player. If somebody burned this on a CD for you, you probably have a home. You probably have a bed. You probably have a car and clothes. You probably have a savings account and food on your table at every meal. You probably have clean water to drink. These are all material possessions which God has blessed you with. And thus, what you do with those things is an issue of stewardship. Now, as Paul's been imploring us to live in light of our position in Christ, our new position in Christ, we've seen that it requires self-sacrifice. We've seen that 
Paul has challenged us to do things which don't come easy to us because even though we're all new creations in Jesus, we have old habits, habits which flow out of a life which is totally and utterly selfish. But selfishness can never, never characterize the life that's being lived for the kingdom of God. We're called to be selfless. We're called to love a God that we can't physically feel and who speaks to our hearts and usually doesn't speak to our ears. We're called to love people who don't necessarily love us back. And we're called to love one another with the love and devotion that a family shares. Wherever God has put us, whatever our circumstances are, our calling is to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And when we do that, we're able to be at perfect peace. In human affairs, a person who does all the little things you know, in the background that make the big things work can be easily overlooked, but we know that this will never happen with God. We might look like our lives are in a rut from time to time, so to speak. But looks are deceiving. Just as WikiLeaks has recently leaked out all this private and confidential material about our world leaders, there's going to be a day when all of the things that everyone has done will be laid out and made plain, and the Lord will reward each faithful believer in accordance with what we've done with the things we've been blessed with. In verse 12 here in Romans chapter 12, Paul instructed us to rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, and to be devoted to prayer. And each of these acts is closely connected to the others. But we have to remember that the separations which might uh, might appear to be there between the verses weren't really part of the original inspiration of Scripture. They were added hundreds of years later for the sake of making it easier to reference each verse or passage or chapter or whatever. So in addition to the three actions that we're instructed to carry out in verse 12, there are two more actions that we're called to do that Paul would add to the list. So he writes here in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now these two things are actually very similar. One might even say that they're two sides of the same coin, and yet there's definitely a distinction between these two acts. Now, when God himself instructs us here through Paul's pen to contribute to the needs of the saints, what do you think of? Well, the first thing that probably comes to mind, the first thing that would come to my mind, uh, and it probably should be the first thing that comes to our minds, is our money. And this brings up the question as to whether or not a Christian uh, must tithe their income. Is tithing a New Testament ordinance? Well, to make it short, No, it's not. In the Old Testament, the tithe belonged to Israel, and there were at least three separate tithes. This was commanded by God through Moses, and we find the tithes in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, Numbers chapter 18, verse 26, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 24, and we also find a mention of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 5. So let's briefly look at each one of those verses. So starting in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, we read, quote, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord, end quote. Okay, so when we read this, keep in mind that this isn't money that's being given to the Lord. Rather, it's what they were reaping from the land. It's what they were farming from the land. And this was a law that was given to Israel, which pertained exclusively to the Israelites. 
We discussed the fact that the law of Moses doesn't apply to followers of Jesus back in chapter 7 of our study of Romans. So if you need to review, it was at the beginning of chapter 7. Then in Numbers chapter 18 verse 26, God says, quote, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. End quote. Okay, so this was a tithe that was specifically given not to all of Israel, it was only given to the Levites, which was one of the tribes of Israel. And then in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 14, verses 24 through 26, we read, quote, If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money, and bind the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. End quote. Okay, let's stop there for a second. So this tithe wasn't to be given, it was to be used. It was used to celebrate by, uh, by consuming it. Let's not stop there, because the next few verses actually provide some additional insight. In verse 27, we read, quote, Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. Okay, so the Levites were in charge of the temple, right? They weren't farmers, and thus they needed someone else to provide food for them. And this is God's instruction to the Israelites to provide physically for those who were providing for them spiritually. Okay, moving on. In verses 28 and 29, we read, quote, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Okay, so what we find here is that every three years, the Israelites were to give yet another 10% of their produce to their town in order that the Levites, aliens, orphans, and widows would have enough to eat for the next three years. And finally, we find a mention of the tithe in Second Chronicles chapter 31, verse 5. Here we read, quote, As soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided an abundance, the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of all, end quote. Okay, so we should note, first of all, that this passage, this verse right here, is descriptive, not prescriptive, and that this was an act of the people of Israel, and it was carried out as King Hezekiah had instructed. But again, this was food. It wasn't money. Yes, there was money. There was currency back then, but they were bringing food, not money. Now, if we take the total of the tithes and average it out annually, we see that their tithes in Israel were actually much more than 10%. It actually came out to be about 23% annually. The question remains then, is tithing instructed in the New Testament? And again, let me just say again, no. And I've heard pastors teach that the tithe is found in the New Testament, but when they're pressed, they say that Jesus was encouraging a specific group of people to do so. But we have to understand that he was speaking to people who weren't under the New Covenant. These weren't New Testament people. They were still under 
the law of Moses. Now, this is just kind of an interesting side note, maybe, but according to uh, to George Barna, the tithe was never taught to New Testament Christ followers until several hundred years after Christ. The practice of that day, several hundred years after uh, after Jesus was on the earth, the practice of that day was that if you farmed on another person's land, you didn't have a fixed rent. Instead, you would give 10% of your income from the yield of crops to the owner of the land. So when the church started allowing people to farm on its land, they adopted that practice and eventually started likening it to a tithe. And this makes perfect sense. I mean, after all, if the tithe is required for us as New Testament Christians, why do we never see Paul or Peter or John or any of the New Testament writers mention a single word about setting aside a designated portion of our income to give to God? Under the New Covenant, instead of giving 10% of what we have, instead of 10% belonging to God, now it all belongs to God. That's what we see in the early church. That's what we see when they were sharing all of their possessions, knowing that their possessions weren't their own. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul does say something about a collection, however. He writes, quote, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he prospers, so that no collection be made when I come. In other words, what Paul's saying here is that he's trying to talk them out of waiting until he comes to take collections, and the amount that they give is to be in accordance with the degree to which they have prospered. That is, they're to give as they're able. So if we were to take the principle there, we would say, well, for some, that's 10%. For others, it'll be more than 10%, and for others, it'll be less than 10%. Paul clarifies in his second letter to the Corinthians, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, quote, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, if it breaks your heart to part with your money, if it breaks your heart to contribute to the ministry of the church, don't do it. If you can't give it cheerfully, don't give it. God doesn't want it unless it comes from pure motives. We should note, however, that when Paul instructs that we should be contributing to the needs of the saints here in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, he doesn't say that it has to be a financial contribution. It depends on what the needs of the saints are. Sometimes that might be clothing. Sometimes it could be a place to live. Sometimes it might be food. And indeed, sometimes it might be money. The principle here is that because we're supposed to be devoted to one another as a family is devoted to one another. If we see a brother or a sister in Christ who's in need, we should be eager and happy to help them if doing so is within our means. And let me tell you, friends, it usually is within our means. Now, I thought this was pretty interesting. As I was doing research for this lesson, I came across a staggering statistic. The average American spends $372 per year on alcohol, but the average Christian only gives $200 per year to charities, including the church. In 2009, more money was spent on dog food than was given to support foreign missions. I think that what these two statistics clearly reveal is that we've got our priorities 
all out of whack. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul outlines the type of giving that we're supposed to practice. He says that we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. That's from verses 2 and 3. Paul writes that, quote, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That's from verse 6. And then he teaches that while we should give to any who is in need, our priority for giving must be our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, in verse 10, he writes, quote, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In other words, that means that if you have a slice of bread, just one slice of bread, and you come across two starving people, a follower of Jesus and a person who isn't a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to give that piece of bread to the starving Christ follower. That's when something amazing should happen, however. The starving follower of Christ would turn and give that piece of bread to the unbeliever, knowing that God will provide for him another way, and that there's a chance that the unbeliever will experience the love of Christ through getting that piece of bread, and might therefore be more inclined to turn and believe in Jesus. Now, why would the starving Christ follower do this? because he or she is being obedient to the second instruction that Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, to be practicing hospitality. Now let's talk about that for a second. The Greek word that gets translated as hospitality here is actually made up of two words, philo, which means love, and xenia, which refers to an alien or a stranger. It's where we get the word xenophobia. And I'm not sure that the word hospitality in our culture completely catches the full meaning of what Paul is instructing us to do here. Originally, this was an instruction for believers to entertain or host people who came through their city, to pay special attention to people who were aliens, strangers. In Paul's day and age, you couldn't call in advance to reserve a spot at a local hotel. So instead, they relied on people taking them in for an evening, usually in exchange for some goods or products or resources or whatever. Paul's telling us here, however, that our motivation for showing loving kindness to strangers isn't to get you know, money or goods or resources or whatever. It's Christ. In our day and age, this type of hospitality may occasionally include giving someone a bed to sleep on for the night, but in a more general sense, it should incline us to reach out in love to a hurt, broken, and dying world which is desperate to be touched by Christ. Paul may as well have said, practice random acts of kindness for the sake of showing Christ's love. And one way of doing that is holding our possessions, holding the material blessings that we have with an open hand rather than a clenched fist, and being eager to share our blessings with others as they need the things that we've been blessed with. That type of outreaching love is something that the world finds incredibly difficult to overlook, incredibly difficult to ignore. So with that said, friends, let me simply encourage you to be creative in seeking ways to use what you've been blessed with to bless those whose need for what you have is greater than your want to keep it for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, first of all, that you modeled selflessness for us by sending your Son to serve as a model for us to follow, to show us what it looks like to be selfless and to serve you with our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would become more and more like you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would direct us and push us when we need to be pushed toward Christ-likeness.
We thank you, God, that you have called us out of darkness and into light, and we pray that we would be a light for the world to see. We love you. We thank you for the many things that you've blessed us with. Help us to hold those things, not with a clenched fist, but with an open hand, in a way that would glorify you, Father. And I pray that you would speak to each of us about how to do that. Thank you so much for this time. We pray that you will bless it and that you will preserve this message for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Beautiful, you're beautiful, your love is sweet and beautiful, and I will stay here waiting for Worshippers, you want love? Say, worshippers.